14th episode of Combo Chain. Paul, I'm Davis, and who am I here with? Uh, this is Fletcher again. I am back. Welcome back, Fletch. Yes. Yeah, it's great to have you back. You're a very, very highly dependable and valued guest, and uh, we had to do a little <laughs> reshuffling and rescheduling, and uh, you were willing to jump in here at the last minute and uh, just on a whim. To Final Fantasy Thirteen Lightning Returns with me, which I really appreciate. Well, absolutely. I I still have the big deluxe guide. I still had notes from when we did a season on this for another show last year. It seemed like an easy fit. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a good fit because I think in the realm of like takes on Final Fantasy games, you and I both like this game quite a bit. <laughs> For all I its think, issues, and a lot of people do not, or they never. I think a lot play. of people who play this game do enjoy it, but there's multiple things in the way of getting there, mm-hmm. like the fact that this is technically the third game in a trilogy, and it plays nothing like the other games in that trilogy. And some people hear about it and think, oh, it's got a Majora's Mask timer. Those give me anxiety. It's an uphill battle, but I would say it's probably about 70 to 80% of the people I know who have tried it absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a tough sell. It's weird. I, I'm trying to figure out how I even came to it because I remember I, I picked up 13... And could not stick with it. Tried 13.2 when it went on sale. Didn't get really that far in 13.2. And then, you know, just because I'm a dumbass about, like, spending money, probably. Lightning Returns probably went on sale one day. And I was like, I'll give that a try. I think it was maybe because I had, by that point, come around to having an appreciation for the games of Triace. And I didn't realize that 13.2 at the time was also developed by Triace. But if there's a kind of like a like house style to Triace games, I would say this Lightning Returns is a lot closer to it than 13.2. I'll go on record and say this is a spiritual successor to Valkyrie Profile like nothing else they've done since the PS2 era. Yeah, yeah. Would you like, like to expand on that? Well... I figure we'll hit it a little in the mechanics, but this is a game that is revolving around a day-to-day timer. You're dealing with Yggdrasil and a lot of Norse mythology throughout it, despite the fact that you are not in our world. Lightning is explicitly referred to by this point in the series as the Valkyrie, and the battle system is basically a 3D version of the combo and chain mechanics from Valkyrie Profile, except instead of it being a different party member bound to each button, 
you are setting up your own schemata of weapons on each outfit you have, which you can start quick swapping through. And the goal is to hit someone in such a specific way that it overwhelms them, shatters their defense, unless you really start doing the damage. Yeah, yeah, those are all really good comparisons. It's not like every Tri-Ace game plays along those lines, but they definitely seem to have... A lot of the ones that I've played have like similar action RPG mechanics. And, you know, some of the weird kind of jankiness <laughs> that you find in this game is shared in other uh, Tri-Ace games. Or just weird, frustrating design decisions, you know. So, Trinus is a studio that if you give them a budget and some time, you are going to get some unique work out of them. But they can't just save a game on their own if you look at pretty much the entire latter half of the Star Ocean series. You can see what happens if they get rushed or shoved into a mold. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've got uh, PlayStation Now and what is it? Star Ocean Faith and Hopelessness. Faith and like, Integrity, I think. Oh, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. That was on PS Now. And I was like, yeah, I'll just give this a try since it's streaming. <laughs> and whew, about an hour into that game, I was like, oh, man, the budget was really, really tight on this game. The best and, summary of Star Ocean Faith and Integrity is this. It is the Star Ocean game that despite all of these basically being it's a Star Trek RPG takes the most place in space and then repeatedly throughout the game there will be massive combats or spaceship battles and all of your characters are looking directly into the camera at a monitor that you can't see going oh my god they're wiping out everyone because no one wanted to render a space battle yeah (laughs) repeatedly (laughs) yeah i i I could imagine that yeah i did not make it that far but the other i can't remember the name of it but the previous star ocean game the last hope i played yes that was also a tri-ace game and that i got a few hours into but i was kind of like wow this is really cool like you know space sci-fi JRPG. Oh, I'm going to be running around on this like crappy jungle planet for the next 10 hours, just doing boring grinding. You know, every time, every time within the first five hours of a star ocean game, you suddenly find yourself trapped on a medieval planet and suddenly you're using swords. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Every time. And I really, you know, I'm a big sci-fi nerd, like space sci-fi nerd. I'm like, I want there to be more space sci-fi JRPGs, but, you know. Oh, well. Yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> back to Lightning Returns. Yes, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> so speaking of development story? troubles, let's, let's just roll through the story so far <laughs> on the 13s. Yes. By this point, you know, Final Fantasy 13, and I am vastly oversimplifying this one because it (laughs) contradicts itself in multiple places and there's a whole development trouble. Go jump in real quick quick and just say that I asked Fletch to summarize this because I 
even though I played about half of 13 and about half of 13 too, <laughs> every time I think about the games and every time I try to look at the wiki uh, to just try and find a synopsis, it just read like word salad to me. So, <laughs> uh, just- You might notice that one thing I did not do anywhere in this rating is mention Seath, Falsy, Lissi, none of that. None of that crap is in here because they're made up nonsense words that if you have no context for them, make no sense. And we'll get there when we talk about the story of the game, but yeah, for the backstory, I'm glad you kind of here, but yeah. 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 And for the record, if you want the ultimate onboarding into this game, uh, Squaresoft themselves made a six or seven minute video using ff6 style sprite work and art to sum up the plot of the prior two games it's beautiful oh wow i'll give it to you if you want it for the show notes. it's actually really funny because it makes fun of some of the twists i'm about to go in like (laughs) montage form oh yeah you gotta send that to me and i'll put it in the show notes i will absolutely get that when we're done recording awesome but in the meantime the ff13 trilogy in brief In FF13, everyone lives in the moon under the whims of space gods with silly names. A space god can give you a quest, and if you complete it, you are granted the sweet release of death. If you do not, you are forcibly Cronenbergged into a monster. (laughs) Everyone in the party is given one of these quests and tries to break the tyranny of the space gods, succeeding after the death of one pope and somehow breaking their quest geese via said assassinations. That's it. That's FF13. Also, Earth is Space Australia. <laughs> I don't yeah. know who came up with that localization decision that everyone who lived on the planet and not in the moon had Australian accents, but given how inhospitable and murderous the place is, I love it. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's one of those things kind of like with Xenoblade Chronicles, where the fact that they just decided to stick with British voice actors makes the games more charming than they otherwise probably would be. (laughs) Yeah. I entirely get how just a little bit of exoticism can add some character to this world to differentiate it from us. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need 13 Nolan North's running around playing Caius and (laughs) yeah, totally. Hey, lightning. Did you know I got a television in this thing? (laughs) What? (laughs) Within about five seconds of Final Fantasy XIII 2, the game shows you the ending cutscene of the first and then immediately retcons it, sucking lightning into a hole and then introducing Noel, who is totally not Sora from the far off future where everything on the planet is dead. Yep. And I really mean it when I say he is Sora from Kingdom Hearts because the dude is constantly rushing in over his head has no sense of reaction because he's grown up around three people his entire life and is way out of his depth being thrown back through the history of his world. <laughs> it's it's pretty blatant in places, and I think it's... I almost think he's meant to be a parody by someone else working at the studio. Yeah, do you think so, or do you think they're just recycling? I think it's I think it's the parody thing because Nomura didn't really touch this. Right. That's true. So That's true. 
Yeah. Someone else in the studio was just like, okay, but what if? (laughs) Anyhow, your party in this game is Noel, Lightning's sister, Sarah, who didn't really exist in the first game because she was trapped in Crystal. She got better, long story. And they tame monsters and chrono trigger their way up and down the timeline to try and fix paradoxes that have cropped up and restore order to history. If you proceed to do everything in the game and get the true ending by resolving all of the paradoxes, you do the thing that multiple people have warned you about through the course of the story, which is kill the undying villain and kill the goddess Etro, which also kills Sarah and leaves the world open to a pouring torrent of chaos. The final line of this very goofy time travel game is one half of your party dead on top of an airship, the other one cradling her in his arms, and a Moogle saying, the goddess is dead, Kupo, as the world fades to black. (laughs) Oh my god. None of this is really going to matter beyond the opening five minutes of this game. Story is not the most important thing to these writers, is all I'm saying. (laughs) That's that's amazing, because... The you know the first half or you know maybe first third that I played, I mean that game comes out of the gate with a, with an incredible opening which yeah is basically like retconning the ending of the previous game, but yeah a huge set piece is kind of badass even though it's got a lot of like quick time events, and then you know kind of drop into the game, and it seems like just kind of a straightforward follow-up to 13 at first, at least it did to me play play wise. So for it it to go, it gets a little crazier. Yeah. Because you start literally jumping through multiple versions of the same time period and a couple of divergent timelines. There's one city that is just like, it's the far future. People have begun to develop again because Everyone was so stunted and controlled when they lived on the moon, but they have a planet now and people are doing things and you're jumping forward hundreds of years at a time. So in one timeline, this city is a horrible police state where like matrix like agents can be made out of any single civilian to attack you. And you are an anomaly who is picked up on by that government and it is hell to be in. And then if you fix a couple of paradoxes, suddenly this massive city is a shining beacon of science and invention run by Hope, the tiny child from the first game who has become a master scientist. Now you're now you're like really selling me on finishing this game. <laughs> I would absolutely say, especially if you have the PC port, grab a cheat engine table to make some of the worst parts more palatable, like you know, turn down encounter rate or whatever, if you don't want to deal with some crap for a while uh-huh. and just go ham on it. It is chrono trigger on LSD. <laughs> Sounds cool. I think I have it on PS three, but I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah. A little harder to cheat that way, but I would yeah. definitely say it's worth if the mechanics themselves are not anathema to you. It's worth playing around with. If this game didn't exist, I would say 13 two is the better 13 game. <laughs> cool yeah well i just finished up trails of cold steel 3 Ooh. which i loved but 
I've been looking for a new JRPG that's maybe a little more kind of light and fun. <laughs> Trails of Cold Steel 3 is great, but, you know, it gets heavy, definitely. So, yeah, I will might give that a try. Also, yeah. it's worth saying that you, Fletch, hosted a podcast that went over all these games in yes, a lot of detail. Yes, figured I would save this for the end of things, but yeah, I am one of the recurring co-hosts and sometimes season lead on Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG book club podcast that just takes one game over the course of a season, we break it down into chunks, we do some dives into development, and we have a lot of fun with it. It began as an investigation of the 13 games, which thus the title, but we have <laughs> branched out going into Final Fantasy 15, or as it was referred to on that season, Final Fantasy versus 13. And <laughs> our current recording is really breaking from the form with Shadow Hearts Covenant. Ah, cool. I think the first episodes of that are out now. Cool. I was a guest on one of the Lightning Returns episodes. It's all coming full circle. <laughs> but yeah, if you want a lot more detail about what goes on in the games, that is the place to go. Yeah, I, again, we shortened these for brevity, but if you really want to hear the full breakdown of what every type of funky space god and time anomaly and clock puzzle is about, that's the show for you. I remember, uh, this is an aside, but I remember it wasn't one of the uh, suggested titles of the show, Telenovela Nova Crystallis. Yes, Telenovela Crystallis was very close <laughs> to what we called that show. And it's probably better we didn't go with that just because of the switch away from <laughs> FF13 related properties at this point. Yeah, that's a hell of a name, though. <laughs> It isn't hell um, of a name, and I actually ran with that on Steam as a username for about a year. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, I've been uh, using Ganondorf on golf as like I as my, oh my God. Like, <laughs> well, that dates the both of us that we get that joke without explanation. I usually just go by my name on most so social profiles, but if I don't, that's what I use. <laughs> that's actually pretty amazing, and I have to give you credit. I had to mention it because I, I'm still, I came up with it a few years ago, and I'm, I'm, I still feel pretty good about it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, should we get into the characters of this game? Yeah. Let's, right. let's cover the people who are still around, still alive, and still relevant at the point of Lightning Returns. All right. So, most importantly, we have Lightning, who, in my opinion, is like just queen badass. She's pretty divisive in Final Fantasy uh, fandom, I think, because she has very little personality. But I think she, <laughs> I think she looks cool. She's kind of just a kick-ass chick. And it's she's a nice change from like the dopey sad boys with big hair that are the protagonists of a lot of Final Fantasy games. That's my take on it. For what it's worth, if you listen to some of the design notes given about her, you can see where they were coming from, even if it didn't quite land. The designer who did her work and put down the template said... 
His goal was to make a female cloud. If you look at her through that lens, it clicks. Mm -hmm. But we're also talking about a game that explicitly highlights how unemotional she is. And both some of the quests in this game and a title that came out directly after it, World of Final Fantasy, are really good at skewering this character and just having fun with it. That's interesting. Uh, World of Final Fantasy is basically a one-off title they did that was sort of a giant piss take on all of Square Enix canon. (laughs) Just like a big, goofy thing. Like, everyone could turn into tiny, chibi versions of themselves. The different worlds are run through. and Imagine if Kingdom Hearts only went through the Final Fantasy worlds, except it was written by Akira Toriyama. Yeah, I played a demo of that, I think, on on Switch. Yeah, it's kind of... Isn't it kind of almost like a po- like a weird like piss take on Final Fantasy meets Pokemon, in a way? So everyone in the game, except for your two leads, is some kind of chibi. And there are, there are sizes. Like, if you have a behemoth, it's going to be large, obviously, with the sizes of small, medium, and large. But your combat mechanic is literally stacking up these things and sending them into battle. Right. So that's that's the w- start of the weirdness. And again, uh, look up some scenes of lightning in that game, and you will immediately see that people on staff definitely got it. That's cool. I'll I will look look those up, and I'll link to at least one. It goes it goes pretty cheap. So look for it. They did an HD port to PC and PS4. Etc. Etc. Cool. I'll take a look at that. Anyway, so back to lightning. <laughs> so, as we already kind of talked about, she was seeking to save her younger sister in the first game in thirteen two. She serves as uh, the Valkyrie, protecting the goddess Etro from her fated rival Caius Ballad. But at the end of the game, she's suspended in this crystal sleep for 500 years, which is how we find her at the beginning of Lightning Returns. Straight up, she has no idea what's happened since the last game, and that's how we get to play around with the time skip and reintroducing everything and retconning all the rules. Totally. Totally. Yeah, she's kind of a blank slate, it seems like, when she comes back. Yep, and then big your big bad is Bunavels. He's the godlike figure in the games, and the driving force behind the uh, Fall Sea, which are these crystal-powered mechanical beings that also have godlike powers. So these are the space gods from the first game I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I guess I don't know. They're kind of like egregores. I don't know. Um, like an occult, occult lore. That's Understood. the best I could. That's all right. It's them too. again. It's they're pretty much just weird alien space gods who get to do what they want. Yeah, yeah. But Brunavels is like the more powerful space god. <laughs> he, he's the Lavos to their spawn. He basically looks like uh, kind of like this very perfect pretty boy uh, model whose body was just, like, overtaken by, like, crazy, ornate, gothic growths. It's kind of a cool design. Strange black crystals and a Final Fantasy game. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Then you've got uh, Sarah, who yes was the younger sister of Lightning, main protagonist of thirteen two, and her soul entered Lightning's body rather than fade into the chaos. So Lightning wants to get Sarah back. Basically. Yeah, she doesn't know that. That's the whole thing at the end of this game. But let's just get that out of the way now. Sarah is chilling inside Lightning for protection. Yes. But we don't know that until later. We've got Hope, who we talked about earlier. He's pretty much just the nondescript Sora kid. He's brought back in this game by uh, Boonavels to basically remotely support Lightning from the Ark. Can I just go off on a rant here? Yes. Hope is probably the single biggest character improvement from 13 to 13 too, because in 13 he is literally a whiny little kid who gets wrapped into this and has no grasp of the stakes for the majority of the plot. Uh, a lot of people hate him because his arc sucks and he's involved in some of the most cringy dialogue in that game. Like moms are tough. <laughs> and in the second game, because he's one of the only survivors of this whole thing, but he's also seen, hey, there's a world outside of our falling moon. And his goal is to, via putting himself in stasis, to oversee this project. Because he doesn't have time travel powers. Everyone but your characters doesn't. He straight up spends about a millennia jumping in and out of stasis, doing the math, running the calculations, keeping things in line to build the city academia and try and put a new artificial floating moon back into space. So everyone can just go back to living the way they were rather than having to live on hell planet full of devil animals. He gets aged up. He grows. He straight up goes from being a little wiener kid to a pretty good character. And he has a full arc through that game and it owns in the third game, none of that matters. Hope is now using the same model he had from the original game where he's just a tiny wiener kid. And the <laughs> game calls it out and goes, yep, don't know what happened here, Light. Sorry about that. I'm going to be your oracle. And he just sits at a computer for the whole game nagging at you. Yep. I hate it. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, that, that was my take now having played the majority of 13.2 was... That he was just this very like nondescript stand-in character, you know. Sort of like he's, he's probably like, the only person computer. who does anything with their life after the events of the first game. That's that's lame. Yeah, if it were anyone else in this role, I would be less upset. But this is just explicitly rolling back a whole arc and doing nothing with this character for the finale to the series. I'm curious. Do you know like much of the backstory as far as like the writing process of these games? So I know some bits. There's a lot of interviews if you have the big Ultimania guide. There's been a lot of discussion with various artists and designers. And if you pick up things like some of the art books, they talk about what went into it, but nobody really talks about the story through these games. And 
we really cannot stress enough how much of a nightmare the development of this trilogy was. The first game has cutscenes that were done so far before they finished the game and the storyline that you will see a cutscene that was pre-rendered and it looks pretty good. And then you will immediately cut out of that where people talk about how what you just saw didn't happen or was immediately undone because the plot changed and they didn't render that a second time. My God. That's the first game. People literally get brought back to life and then someone has to explain, no, it he got brought back to life because we killed him in the story outside of the cutscenes, and now he's just going to... He's a puppet. He's a puppet. That's why he doesn't show up anymore. He's just a figurehead. That really that happens. Par- that may partially explain why I could not follow the story in the first game. I was just like, what? I do not understand what's going on. The second game is made out of leftovers from the first game. Some areas are reused. Some of the new areas are explicitly places they designed that they didn't work into the full game. Like entire regions were just like, yeah, we plan to have you go here, but because this game got shuffled out the door at the end after so many years of troubled development, we just had leftover stuff. And that's why Triace began to take over these games as contract work. Because they could go, all right, here's a bunch of stuff our in-house team did. We'll loan you some people for coordination, but can you stitch a thing out of this? Right. This game, as far as I know, does not have a lot of that on the asset side, which is why it's so different. They actually had people go to... I think it's Italy and Paris to look at some European cities to do the design of a couple of these places. And the story part is where it becomes a mystery because we know about what Lightning's Arc is because the creator and shepherd of the character has talked about it at maybe a little weird level of detail. We don't really have anything on any of the rest of this. And Triace was going through such drastic shifts at this point that I don't think anyone inside has really spoken on it at all. Right. About after this, maybe during the course of this game's development, but a little after, Triace got bought up by a mobile game company who just wanted the licenses they had worked with, and that was how we got that incredibly bad fifth Star Ocean game. Mm-hmm. It's such a bummer. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what happened. And again... Hope is really the only character who gets this shafted. So I don't know if someone, like if no one wanted to touch this character and then they threw him around from game to game or what. Everyone else at least has a continuity and a growth. Right. It's weird. Yeah. it's. I mean, I think you find this a lot of times with these big budget JRPG series or games that start to kind of like just lose the plot as far as like <laughs> like running out of money and taking too long to develop and it just feels like there's so much kind of like writing by committee going on and n- not enough sort of like editing maybe or consistent editing i mean I think it this. might just be a feature creep thing where we yeah. have other things that need done on deck and then we have to tie it together with what's finished. All right. So 
We got Noel Kreis. He's a young man uh, who appears in uh, Sarah's village after the meteor strike in 13-2. And he's uh, kind of the secondary protagonist of the game. In 13-2, he's the last remaining Farseer from 700 AF. And he's traveled back in time to change his fate. Basically, after meeting Lightning in Valhalla, he accompanies his sister, Sarah, on her quest to reunite with Lightning and change the future. And so, yep, he's literally the last human alive, as we talked about. There's actually a pretty harrowing scene in that game where you see what his... Like, both of your characters are put into nightmare labyrinths, and his is just wandering through his under 12 people ruined settlement at the end of time and watching everyone blow away and turn into dust. And then he walks out into the desert to die. (laughs) That's pretty rough. Yeah. And you have to watch this as Sarah because you have not figured out how to get him out of this thing yet. So you're literally watching him see all of his loved ones crumble to dust and give in to despair. God. It's a pretty solid scene. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay. Oh yeah. Then when we got uh, we got Caius Ballad. <laughs> My God, some of these names. I mean, you realize Noel is part of a two-person pun about Christmas, right? That hadn't occurred to me. Noel and the Noel is the guardian of the seer Yule. Oh my God. Yes. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a whole recurring thing throughout the second game and no one ever calls it out. And it's just right there. Sort of like, you know, rock and roll or etc. It's just one of those stupid little puns that no one will ever bring attention to in the world. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I kind of love that. It's cute. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, you got Caius Ballad. He was uh, the main antagonist of Final Fantasy 13-2. Basically, 13-2 starts with this ba- badass, like, kind of extended cutscene with the quick time events where you're in the realm of Valhalla and Lightning's riding a horse. Like a flying horse or something, if I'm remembering this. May I take this? Because I can can sweep all of these last characters into one on this. Okay. Okay. 13-2 and the time travel revolve around the fact that after the first game, the retcon is lightning was sucked into the timeless realm of Valhalla. She now sits there at the end of time and functions as sort of a guardian. And then Caius shows up pissed off at his goddess and wanting to die. So he's going to fight. He's immortal. He can't die. Lightning is just that good. She's not going to die. The two of them are engaged in endless battle. So Lightning cannot get out of this fight without letting him wreck shop. And she summons Noel, the only guy who was ever as good as Caius because he was trained by him at the end of time or the end of human civilization and goes, grab my sister, go fix things. So the entirety of 13-2 is lightning fighting Caius in Valhalla. Caius is mad because he was given the gift of immortal life 
by the goddess Etro and told to watch over her seers, the woman who was reincarnated over and over called Yule. Caius has Etro's heart, which means that he cannot die. It will continue pumping, continue reviving him. Yule has Etro's eyes, which means that she can see visions of the future, and every time she does, her remaining lifespan is cut in half. Every Yule dies young. Every single Yule gets put into Caius's care. After a few millennia of this, Caius gets so furious that his goal is to, in fact, murder Etro at any means necessary for the horrible things that he has had to deal with. Etro is the cause of every single person's woes throughout this trilogy until 13.3. And it's all because she's trying to do things to make everyone's life better in the most mm-hmm. backwards-ass monkey's paw way. God. There you go. That, yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It, Etro kind of isn't introduced outside of the Codex until the second game, but if you look at what she actually did, you realize that she's sort of the villain of the whole piece. <laughs> However, at the end of two, Caius wants to fight in Valhalla because being outside of time, it means if he dies there, he won't be revived. He does the whole thing to get a final death. The problem is everyone tells you throughout that game, he's got the goddess's heart. He's got the goddess's heart. He's got the goddess's heart. So when he impales himself on your sword through the heart, you murdered Etro too. Right. (laughs) Everyone sees it coming, but you, because Noel is Sora and has three brain cells total. What do you mean I stabbed the goddess in the heart? Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, that's 13-2. That's good. That's good. I think that gives us the context that we need to kind of get into the game. <laughs> this, this is, yeah, again, that's where we left off in the story, and we kind of throw everything but sweeping waves of chaos out when we start this. Right. Yeah, but before we start talking about specifics, let's just uh, dip into the mechanics a little bit. So this one is pretty different from the last two games, and 13-2 was an evolution of 13's combat system and sort of just expanded it. The traversal around the world was very similar. This game is no party, just lightning. You have a timer of sorts in that there is a clock ticking down. The game tells you you have seven days, but you can expand it to 13. And while it passes at a rate of one minute, I think it's, I forget exactly what it is. I think it's one minute to one hour, but I may be off on that. But there's a skill called chronostasis that can be used to stop the clock. And as long as you're fighting regularly, that skill fills up. So, especially if you're in easy mode where they take off the penalty for running away from battles, it's pretty easy to keep the clock stopped and give yourself a lot of time to work with. The battle system, similarly, is not the same evolution. It's got some of the same things. You have 
roles that are very similar to the Ravager, Commander, etc. of the prior 13 games. But it's more of an action RPG, and you have freedom to control your movement. You have dodges. You have blocking. It's not just throw things on a menu with ATB gauge. However, you do have three ATB gauges because you have three outfits. So the trick is to start juggling skills between all of them to continue a combo, to break an enemy's guard, to really lay the hurt down on them. Like I said earlier, it's very Valkyrie profile and that timing and the type of skill come into it a lot. But you don't have to min-max the same way you did in those games. You can. There are definitely some challenges in this game that are very focused on here's high level play for you people who get into that. But you that's really more of a new game plus thing, and you're not going to run across it by accident, especially one of them who is incredibly tedious to get to by accident. You kind of need to know this person, this super boss will show up on this day in the middle of the desert and he flies around, so you need to be at the one spot he's going to land to create the encounter, and also he's going to try running, so have fun. <sighs> so yeah, another uh, mechanic is extinction. It's the end of the world, baby. And just like there's only so many humans left to save, there's only a set number of monsters remaining in the game world. And basically the key to this is that if you exa- exhaust all but one of a species, the final one will turn into a neon magenta and uh fight with the entire memory of its race and they become omega versions of that enemy and basically killing those will uh award you potent gear massive rewards and it simplifies some quests if you've like wiped out a certain species you can just basically win anything that involves taking on that type and you know this mechanic you can literally remove all but a couple of fiend types from the world which makes the optional dungeon ludicrously simple since any extinct enemy will not appear in, in the boss rush that it has. So, so the, the final optional dungeon is an interesting one because on the second to last day, if you extend the clock out the most to 13 days, there is a bonus dungeon and it is 120 floors long, one for every type of enemy in the game. On each floor is the Omega variant of those monsters. But the clock is still running. So if you've been doing extinctions, and specifically if you do certain key ones, those floors will turn from here is the Omega monster into here's a portal that lets you skip a couple of levels forward if you want. And so if you plan out, like if you route via the bestiary or a guide telling you who's on what floor, you can take out specific enemies to go portal, 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 portal. This one couldn't be extincted, so I have to fight it, portal. Mm -hmm. And that's how you make it through a 120-floor dungeon in the time limit, especially since the final couple floors are like bosses you can't skip. Damn. Yeah, I did not take (laughs) take that on. It's a very interesting... A lot of the things they did with mechanics in this game are fascinating, especially playing with the clock and extinction and challenges, what it looks like when you're wiping the face of the earth clean. 
Yeah, they do some really interesting things, and it makes you reconsider if you just want to go into the game and just grind away in the way that you would in a more traditional JRPG. Like, there's enough changes in mechanics to kind of upend that you can't just kind of like mindlessly grind away. Related to that, I didn't mention under time, but never skip time in this game. The game will pull you out of the world automatically at the end of the day. So you can work up to the deadline and then you just get summoned back to Yggdrasil and it'll drop you right back where you left off. So there's never any loss for that other than a day ticked forward. Events are going on at all hours of the day because after 500 years of immortality, nobody has any sense of when bedtime is. It's not like there's a sun anymore. And so there are going to be periods where it's like, ah, the next event in this quest chain doesn't take place for four hours. Never, ever skip time. Never answer the thing that tells you, hey, do you want to just wait around for three hours? No, you can fight things. You can take the train to somewhere else for a bit. You can literally start teleporting once you get a certain ability. Never waste your time. If you don't do any of that, you have a glut of it over the course of this game. I know some people who've gotten the entire story done within the first six days before they give you any extensions and then they're just sitting there going, well, I guess I'm going to go do monster genocide for a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good... That's, that's a tip that I wish that I had when I was originally playing the game. A lot of people think, oh, God, it's a timer game. There's really not a timer as long as you don't skip around and as long as you remember you have chronostasis. Yeah. Another mechanic that I think really kind of changes this up, you know, from some of the, you know, kind of just traditional JRPG leveling, et cetera, et cetera, is the whole outfits and schemata system. And I think this is one of the coolest battle mechanics in the game or like any action RPG game I've played. And basically, lightning can shift between three different outfits on the fly, with, like within a, a battle, and each outfit both looks cool in a very different way and (laughs) has totally different combat abilities. So you're building up the abilities of the schemata rather than lightning herself. And some of them are things that you can look at and go, okay, I know what this is. This is an armored thing with a lance. It's very Dragoon-like. It has jump as a basic ability. Some of them are, this is more magic inclined, or this is fitting into the role of like a status heavy saboteur from the last two games. Others are just very weird outfits that you can turn into what you like via accessories or development. Like, I'm going to put on an opera dress and just start uh, swinging a sword, or... Some of the Squaresoft DLCs you get automatically if you have the PC port or the complete edition of this game. I'm just going to dress up like Lara Croft and my weapon is a pickaxe. <laughs> These are a bunch of the different things you do, and all of them have their own development trees that you can change around and alter with accessories. 
It's pretty, it's really cool. It's really cool. There's something just incredibly satisfying, I think, in battle, like in the actual like play of the game and the battles to just be shifting back and forth and being like, you know, oh, now I'm attacking, you know, I'm doing like, you know, you know, attacks with a sword. Now I'm using like lightning magic or whatever. And, you know, just kind of jumping back and forth. It's got a flow. Yeah, it's got a flow. And almost, even though it's very much like a, action RPG. It almost gives it kind of like a rhythm of a platinum game. And some, sometimes that's kind of that the feeling would, that I got. That would very much fit because some outfits have a perfect guard. Some are very dodging based. Timing does play into it. You, If you do a perfectly timed dodge or guard, you get bonuses. You might get a bonus to staggering enemies. And if you hit enemies during certain moves or hit them in a certain spot, you can also get an instant crit. It very much is trying to be that platinum level without having the forced skill ceiling of higher difficulty play on those. Yeah. But when Paul says that these are all based around flow or that this all comes together quickly, these are just bound. You've got three of them and your shoulder buttons are just left and right through the rotation. So you can be attack, attack, switch, attack, move, spell, dodge, switch to your defensive one because there's a dragon's breath coming up. And it really just plays on the fly. Once you get that rhythm down, it's easy as heck. Yeah, totally. Uh, You also want to be switching because... Each one has its own action bar. So you are not trying to save up all your action points for one scheme that hits the hardest. It's you want to switch into the other ones to be using their skills while the other one recharges that you can slide back into. Yeah, they kind of it kind of works like a like having multiple ATB meters or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, I was just, yeah, I didn't really have anything to add to that. It's explicitly <laughs> what it is. And then finally, it's an open world game, which is unlike the previous fan- Final Fantasy thirteen games. It's got like relatively open world, you know, compared to the first one, which was like just one long corridor for most of the game, at least, you know. Yeah, as far forward, as forward, 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 Grand Pulse forward. Yeah, yeah I, I, I never made it to the part where it, opens up slightly. The lightning returns, you know, you're pretty much uh, stuck within one area at the beginning of the game, but in very little time, it starts to open up. And it's not, you know, it's not like really an open world in the sense of, I don't know, like a Ubisoft game. You know, it's not this like ginormous, boring world that you have to (laughs) uh, shuffle around. I'd say it's maybe like more of an open world in the sense that like near Automata, would be an open world. Uh, I'll just steal a line from our story summary a little down. The chaos released at the end of 13.2 has consumed all creation. Time and space are broken with the entirety of the planet pulse reduced to five islands connected by a train, slowly sinking into the chaos like everything else. So you have five different chunks of this planet which are incredibly diverse. Only two of them are cities. One of them is just a massive desert. 
Another is the ruins of Grand Pulse, which are fractured by earthquakes and starting to become uneven. This is what it's like, and all of them are distinct, have their own geography, have their own traversal, and there are a couple of ways you can start finding as you make progress or get different quests to shortcut between them, sort of like some Metroid games have, where it's like, oh, that connects to that. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good clarification. I, I see that referred to as like, you know, it's it's not what people think of when they think of as like a quote-unquote open-world game. But yeah, we're not talking full sandbox game here, but you have five playgrounds with their own main quest line that you can start pursuing in whatever order you like. Yeah, which to me, you know, is preferable. (laughs) And there's nothing outside of that initial quest that's kind of your tutorial that forces you into one or another. If you don't like the desert, do the desert last when you're overpowered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that's kind of nice. You can... You can go to areas and you're like, ah, this doesn't really like interest me or I'm just like not skilled enough to really be here. And you can put it off till later and go back and do other stuff. There's plenty of stuff to do. It's also possible to just skip an entire quest line. You don't have to complete them all to get to endgame. Now, that said, it's going to cripple you a bit uh, major quest lines in this game are the only way you raise stats. You don't grind lightning's levels. You get stat points for every side quest and main quest you finish. Mm-hmm. So you'll have less HP or less power or maybe a, one less bar on your ATB meters. But if you decide that is totally a thing you're okay with in endgame instead of dealing with fighting a desert dragon... Go for it. Totally. Totally. You basically have to explicitly bomb everything to get the game over, restart new game plus ending. <laughs> and it does happen. It is in there, but any game over you get that's super major, like you got to end game and it sucked, there's explicitly a portal that just goes, you want to start time over with all your stats? Right. Which is kind of nice. Yeah. Well, should we get into the story? So it is 1000 AF, 500 years after Chaos was released, and Lightning awakes on top of the Frozen Throne in the world of Nova Chrysalia. The world is going to be destroyed in roughly a week, but technically it's two. No one has been born for centuries, but barring accident or malice, no one ages or dies either. There are 500-year-old children running around this world. <laughs> so Unavels, the god who created the Falsi, chose Lightning to be the savior who is going to collect mankind's souls and lead them into a new world he is forging. In return, he says he will totally resurrect her sister Sarah, which is all she wants out of this. Lightning teams up with Hope, who has been assigned to her as a computer guy sitting in a white void in space, much like most of us right now. And (laughs) he's going to be the one who just goes, hey, Light, I see some things over there. Or, you know, I think I found your guy. 
and that's it. He's a voice in your ear for most of the game. He's your, he's he's basically your navvy. Yeah, yeah. It's explicitly that he just sits there, and every once in a while he goes, "I don't trust him," or <laughs> "Do you think we can actually do this?" And that's it. He will never appear in a battle with you. He will never manifest in the world. That's all. At the end of every day, uh, 6 a.m. to be precise, you are pulled back into the Ark where you give up any souls and things to try and make the tree bloom. Again, if you are completing a decent amount of progression or doing a certain number of quests a day, you're going to go from seven days to 13 at the end. Because, of course, it's 13. Yeah. And so just to give a short overview of where some of these characters from the previous games are now, that Lightning's kind of set out. Yeah, she comes across them throughout the game, but a lot of them pretty early on. She comes across Snow, who's depressed over Sarah's death and is still a Lassie. So he's actually... A new Lassie. That's a whole thing in this game. What is a Lassie again? Okay, a Lassie is a person who... Remember I mentioned space gods can give you a dark quest? Basically, it's a devil's deal with those things. Got it. Okay. So if you are one of those servants, you are a Lassie. Everyone was freed from that in the first game. Snow keeps trying to do things to become a hero and the easy way to power is to just make deals with space gods. This is now, I think the third time he has become one of these. (sighs) And now he's basically kind of the Donald Trump of the pleasure city of uh, Yusanon. (laughs) Oh no. I've, I've always described it as snow has ruled over a 500 year cocaine rave. He's he's the patron of it. <laughs> yes, he is explicitly referred to as the patron for a while, and you don't know it's Snow until you meet him. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got Noel. He's tormented by his role in Etro and Sarah's deaths, and by the world's current state, and he's become a vigilante or in the religious city of Luxurion. If you are familiar with Batman comics, Noel has become Azrael. Oh, right. He's straight up hunting people with a semi-religious bent and the shadows. I think they refer to him as the hunter. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, half of these people have different big pronoun names that are used for them in place of their actual names until you get the reveals. Yeah. <laughs> you got Vanille, a priestess, kind of a, never really like struck me as a very interesting character, but, you know, in the previous games, but... She does serve a important role or semi-important role in this game. She's being sheltered by the Order of Salvation, and she's being hailed as a saint for having gained the ability to hear the voices of the dead. Which there are um, a lot of now. Yeah, and so basically believing that the Order is using Vanille to suit their own ends, Herbie Young Fang leads a band of thieves in the Dead Dunes to obtain a relic that the Order is after. Fang and Vanille, for what it's worth, are interesting characters in concept who do not really come into reality. They're straight up lovers who 
basically give their lives to save everyone at the end of 13 do not really do anything other than a single vision in 13-2 and now all of a sudden they're alive again in this chaos world so the fact that they don't get their peace even in this with one of them now hearing the damned or the dead and the other going that's pretty fucked up babe babe what are you doing babe no is kind of tragic it is it is I guess because I hadn't really like engaged with the characters in the previous games uh, that that were like been really like taken in by them, <laughs> I was like not really feeling a lot it. of a lot of fans like the concept. Again, these are two explicit gay characters in a PS3 JRPG. Even if like they don't get all we're making out, but they're very clearly partners. Mm-hmm. but they also just vanish for large swaths of this plot. So it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh yeah. So in wildlands, which is a untamed region where the creation of Nova Crystallia took place, Saws, our buddy with the uh, Afro. AKA the dude most of you liked in FF13. Yes. Greaves over his comatose son, Dodge, while Mog leads the settlement of Moogles. You've got Caius, who's uh, residing within the ruins of Etro's temple, where the uh, chaos is bleeding from him. Uh, He's only got various incarnations of Padra Nus Yule for company. Uh, And then Lightning also encounters this mysterious childlike entity, Lumina who strangely resembles her sister, Sarah. It's goth Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> her agenda is unknown. Every now and then, like, Lumina basically appears and, you know, surprisingly, she must, like, exist inside Lightning Soul or something because yeah. um, Hope can't hear their conversations or, you know, and she just kind of shows up to plant seeds of doubt in Lightning's mind on uh, what those two plan is. The game all but spells it out after the first couple of these. So we're not going to pretend. Yeah, this is Sarah's soul, blah, blah, blah. Bunavels can't see souls. So that's why the chaos is made up of dead humans and specifically a giant paradox we'll get to in a bit but this is the rational part of lightning using her sister as a focus to go none of this makes any sense maybe this deal is not good for you totally so we start the game and use non with lightning straight up storming the patron's palace to confront snow the last lassie in the world the storm of chaos manifests inside the place. So even though she's come in for an assassination, snow and lightning fight back to back to save all of the people at his reverie. And then the two of them, because they are brother-in-law and sister-in-law immediately start fighting because a thing that a lot of people don't pick up on and which as an older sibling of someone who's had dirtbag partners. Uh I have a younger sister who's very much like Sarah. So 
the fact that Snow is Lightning's age and dating her younger sister and is also like a full-on dirtbag for all three of these games, even if a well-intentioned one, definitely feels like some of the most relatable character writing to me. I hadn't even really thought about that, but yeah, that's that does seem... Yeah. At Lightning's age, she's a commander in the army and celebrated and is like a one-man commando. At Lightning's age, Snow is a guy who wears a beanie has permanent stubble and throws a 500 year rave. And that's the most explicit thing he ever does as a life goal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was dating your younger sister. Yeah. And yeah. They're explicitly going to be married and it's almost imp- like there's definitely some vibes in the part where he like suddenly proposes to her that like, you totally get the sense that Snow might think he's accidentally knocked her up or something. <laughs> he's so skeezy in that first game. Would that mean that Lightning would have a pregnant inner soul? It's entirely possible. Maybe this is the baby. Maybe that's why it's so weird. The baby! <laughs> so yeah, this is where Lumina first shows up, and she actually shatters your weapon so you can't kill Snow. Lightning tries to follow Snow, but he has locked himself inside the place with a dark magic she can't do. And she just senses there is raw chaos on the other side of this thing. Kind of thinks, well, that's not good, but she has to leave. And this is where you leave day zero. Yep. So basically, you are checking out uh, Luxurion, which is a very cool city kind of patterned off like old European architecture. Yeah, this Luxurian is very European. They took a trip to, I know France, I think they cited Italy in the art design too. Early sketches of this area are very interesting to see because they gave it more of a checkerboard design and like rooftops that are completely randomly leveled. It has a very old European, these cities were not designed for modern travel look to it. Yeah. It's, it's really striking. It just, it it really stands out. It feels really unique. And we didn't mention it because you're mostly inside the pleasure palace in Yuznan, but Yuznan is a city that is just an eternal festival. It is carnival 24 seven for 500 years. (laughs) (laughs) yeah one of the things i think this game does really well is like it has these really real well realized different areas that are in strong contrast to one another so you've got the ark which is like an aseptic spaceship and then you've got yusan which is this carnival and then you go to luxurion and it's very kind of like classic old world Europe. And it just makes for like a really cool contrast. I mean, there are two major empty wastelands, one of which is green land that's been shattered by broken earthquakes and is incredibly uneven. And then there's just the dead dunes an inhospitable, endless desert that even chaos is finding hard to swallow. Totally. 
they they make very distinct design decisions and i think that concentrating down to there are only these islands left in a sea of chaos really focused their design yeah yeah i agree i agree yeah it's just everything everything is really striking in its own way so yeah basically getting back to the story what's going on in luxurion is that there is a cult known as the Children of Etro, and they believe lightning to be the harbinger of the oncoming apocalypse. And they're going around murdering pink-haired women uh, during their uh, nocturnal rites to lure her out, which does not seem like the smartest plot. Like, seems like pretty stupid. Um, To be fair, if after everything that happened in the prior two games, you figure, yes, I'm signing on with Team Dead Etro, I don't know what you're the most sane anyway. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Just kind of like, uh, well, well, you know, we'll just keep on killing uh, pink-haired women until we find the right one. Really, the Um, thing that shocks me is that they got 100 years of pink-haired women. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, you ru- you know, Lightning's running around trying to put a stop to uh, the cult's activities, and she runs into Lowell, and he believes he's got to kill her. Yes, the hunter. He believes he's got to kill her to ensure the coming of a better world, and uh, to basically uh, reunite with uh, Yule from his era, who was basically endlessly reborn back when time still f- flowed normally. And it turns out that this prophecy that he's following is a fake created by Lumina. And when he's actually given a chance to strike a lightning, Noel destroys the Oracle Drive prophecy instead. And Yule's spirit emerges from the damaged Oracle Drive and promises they will be together soon. Lightning saves Noel's soul and frees him from his burden of guilt. For what it's worth, Oracle Drives are an interesting part of the 13-2 story. They are recordings of the seer visions that the Yules have throughout time. And so it means that a seer might have a vision that's not going to be of use until someone 300 years down the timeline finds it and can put things together because it was the future. So... Finding one of those is what sets hope on the path to going, hey, if we play with time, if I go in stasis, I can do things. We can build this world. And meanwhile, you're meeting various Yules throughout the timeline. So it's it's kind of an interesting concept. And this is just the last nail in that coffin. You destroy the final one. Totally. Prophecy as kind of a curse comes up a lot in this arc. But after you finish some of the initial stuff, Luxurian is split into two districts, an upper and a lower city. The lower one is kind of like seedy, it's cramped, etc. But the upper city contains the cathedral. And this is where the totally not the fantasy pope, Vanille, requests that maybe Lightning, who is starting to make a name for herself at this point, come visit her. So she gets to, after running an errand for the aide, come up and Lumina, while they're in there, shows Lightning just a tremendous mass of chaos underneath the cathedral. She refers to it as the Wind of Sorrow, 
And with the dead not passing on, because that was Etro's job, every soul is just hunkering down underneath this place, which is why Vanille can hear all of them. They're all beneath her feet, constantly screaming, gibbering, talking, wanting release, wanting something new. And what she has been told by the Order of Salvation is they have a way to save the dead by granting them oblivion. Vanille decides everyone should get the peace of non-existence, and so I'm going to be down with this. The, the Order, we should probably make clear because we're making this sound very sanitized is explicitly shown to be the villains of this game and it's pretty clear after about five minutes of dealing with them that Bunavels is not on the up and up yeah yeah there's a whole lot of bullshitting going on here <laughs> and both uh, a god and the order manipulating people and giving them false information so basically, after that, Lightning returns to uh, Yusanan and uh, she infiltrates Snow's Palace during the performance of the Song of the Savior show. She basically proves to Snow that she's not an imposter by uh, recognizing the engagement necklace that he and Sarah wore after uh, deciding to marry. For what it's worth, at this point, it's made clear that his sanity is definitely slipping because he says he has seen visions of lightnings come to kill him before and to like chastise him and all sorts of things, which is how this one, you know, our lightning has to go. But no, you're, you're my sister's dirtbag boyfriend. I recognize that piece of shitty costume jewelry. Right. Yeah. But he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's been losing his grip for a while. Uh, he basically uh, just wants to die. Uh, as penance for his failure to uh, protect Sarah. And uh, he basically intends to have lightning kill him after absorbing the chaos that's at the center of the palace that he's been containing to save uh, Yusnan. And yeah, it then, turns out his cocaine rave has been 500 years of sitting on this place and absorbing more and more damned energy to keep the party city from being drowned. Yeah. See, I'm telling you, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> just feeding, feeding on the chaos. <laughs> like, mm, I can't argue with that. Yeah. So yeah, what happens is uh, Snow transforms into uh, a Seath, which are those Cronenbergs that we uh, mentioned earlier, but he's yeah. defeated in battle, and uh, Lightning reverses his transformation by convincing him that uh, Sarah's soul still wishes to be with him. For what it's worth, so the time in this game works in the way that after X number of days, difficulty scales up a bit because they presume you've gotten so much down. But if you blitz through the game quickly, you can take on the first form of all the major encounters. Snow is the only one who has a third tier as opposed to everyone else just being regular and plus. Snow can go double plus if you save him for last. And... If you want that, that's probably the most brutal the main storyline gets. So if you want a good challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be, he can be pretty tough. Yeah, he's the only one who is, again, uh, a Seath, the last in the world. And that is supposed to be 
a whole tier of power beyond your average person, even when we're talking about uh, level 99 superhumans who have lived for 500 years. For what it's worth, they've played with that mechanically before in this series. When you become a you in the first game, you actually get an extra ATB bar, which is how you can tell two characters are already marked by the fact that they have four instead of three before you realize what that means. Right. There's a lot of weird stuff like that that they do some subtle things in this series, and I feel like it deserves praise, even if not everything lands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a ton of interesting stuff. So, in that giant desert we mentioned, the Dead Dunes, Lightning discovers that Fang is the leader of a bandit group going by Monoculus. And so, she has been leading this group on what are supposedly raids for treasure, but she's trying to find a holy relic that the Order has been searching for. She is incredibly suspicious of the Order, thinks that Vanille is just a pawn in their plot. She hates him. She hates that they've turned her lover against her. And so she goes, ah, lightning. Knew you'd show up eventually, you old bitch. Well, you want to help me out with this? Because I feel like you owe me for keeping the world intact once. So the two of you team up, go to the temple ruins. And I actually love part of the construction of this dungeon The Dead Dunes are massive, but there are various places where excavations have been made to try and find this set of ruins. And so around around everything, there are different holes that lead down, and they're false entrances. Like, oh, we couldn't open this door. Oh, we couldn't get in here. Ah, we finally found the correct one. As you progress through the place, though, these were all, prior to the whole thing sinking into the sand centuries prior, actual ways in and out. So if you open them from inside, you now have shortcuts to jump around through this dungeon. And mm-hmm. every major dungeon in this game is designed in such a way that if you don't finish it in one sitting, you can make progress and come back later after a skip, or if you want to do another quest, and still speed through without losing everything. Which is so nice and so forgiving. They really... This is the first one of these games that was not just made of scraps or put together from a bizarre haphazard development cycle. And it really shows with how polished a lot of mechanics like this and the time and all of the alternate ways you can go at it are considered. It's great. Yeah, that's just a quality of life design decision that you still don't get in a lot of RPGs. And Um, it also rewards you for taking the time to open some of these shortcuts, because if you want to say, do side quests later, it means you have multiple entries in to look for the treasure that someone thought they saw underneath the ruins or where this thing that a guard dropped. in. so, The temple is, in fact, a... It's very much older than anything else in the game, and it is a history lesson in how Bunavels created the Falsi, and they go through... you're, You're seeing these relics that just sum up a history that no one has really seen, and then you find this artifact known as the Clavis, 
Fang's immediate thought is, well, if I destroy this, they don't get it, and that means I win. Lightning, who is not quite sure of who's in the correct side yet, stops her, and that is when the whole thing falls into the Order's hands, because of course they expected that this was going to be done. Lightning's in the world. Things are actually going to start happening at the end of time. So Fang is incredibly pissed at Lightning for this. And she says the reason she wanted to destroy it and why she lied to Lightning, who she knows is working for Bonavelle's, is that the ritual is going to murder Vanille. So Lightning says, you know, you could just talk to your girlfriend. <laughs> and that's where that quest ends until the final day. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you move on to the Wildlands and uh, you come across a injured white chocobo that the local legends know as the Angel of Valhalla, which is said to uh, herald the end of the world. And I uh, never, never thought I'd hear uh, a chocobo as the Angel of Valhalla. <laughs> it's such a weird through line for this. And also, we're recording this days after... Ubisoft has announced, hey, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. So that's that's yeah. also a new weird twist to this. Yeah, it's just so it's like Chocobos are just kind of like I know that they have a bigger role in the series, but they're you know the goofy big chickens that you ride around. Sometimes they're punk rockers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but for the most part. Oh, there is there's a Chocobo woman in here too, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, Chocolina is a thing, and you didn't play 13-2 to completion, so you don't know her deal. I don't. Chocolina, the shopkeeper who has wings for hands and, like, a chocobo helmet, hat, something, is the chick that lived in Saz's Afro, given form by the goddess Etro. Oh, okay. Again... Etro is something. <laughs> wow, that puts that that puts a lot of things together in my head. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's your merchant throughout all of 132 and Lightning Returns. Mm-hmm. And uh hilariously, she's another thing they play with in World of Final Fantasy because there is a merchant in that game who is dressed the same, called Chocolina, but she's just a crazy woman who likes to dress up as a chocobo and wear very little clothing in public. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. What? No, I'm not half chocobo. Just potions. <laughs> it's That's it's an incredibly fun game, that one. That's phenomenal. So anyway, back to the to the Angel of Valhalla uh, chocobo. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> The chicken that heralds the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, Lightning basically nurses him back to health and uh, rides him to Etro's temple, which is where chaos is bleeding uh, into the area. This is where she discovers that the origin of the great chaos is uh, Yule's fragmented soul. And um, she meets basically numerous different incarnations and Caius, who's uh, yearning for death, but unable to die. So this, I really like the revelation of that as one final middle finger to everything. Etro tried to make a seer to help the world out with prophecy and everything. 
and by making it the same woman reincarnated thousands of times, she created the paradox of the chaos, which is that every single Yule was not the same woman. They all had their own development, their own history, their own feelings, and as a result, this soul is split into a thousand warring sides with their own opinions. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's it's a really cool idea. Yeah, I love it. The yeah. actual reveal of that is a really good touch in this dungeon. You are seeing various sides of Yule, various incarnations of her talk to you as you go through this dungeon, and half of them want to save Caius. They just want him to like be allowed to live, to last through the end of days. The other half want you to grant him the peace of death. And so this is the contradiction at the heart of the chaos. All of these are the same being and none of them can come to a consensus because of their thousands of lives. So Caius and the Yules remain at the temple as lightning moves on. They basically intend to be destroyed because there's no place for them in the new world. Yeah, the the goal that Lightning has is to collect the souls of everyone in this ruined world so they can be carried on to the new place Bunavels is making. You kill Caius in a duel, and he refuses to let you claim his soul. He explicitly says, I'm going to die here. I'm not coming with you. You cannot make me. Yeah, which is pretty... It's hardcore. Pretty hardcore, totally. Before you leave, you get a uh, little reveal that the Angel of Valhalla, your uh, chicken bro, is actually the reborn form of Odin, which was Lightning's Eidolon from when she was uh, Lassie, which was, yeah, that's from the beginning of 13-2, right? 13. He's her son. right. Right. So that's the whole backstory of the Angel of Valhalla. So now the great chaos that destroyed the world balance was revealed to be Yule's like existence as multiple souls. Lumina basically implies to you that there's still one Yule who longs for someone other than him. And since we already covered the Noel Hunter thing, yeah, the, that one Yule is the one that he shepherded at the end of time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, elsewhere in the Wildlands, there's the Saz quest. This one kind of sucks because most of the other major quests are localized to the area they take place in and they just require you to do some chain of events. They're broken up in different ways so you can get partial gains as you go through them and make progress. Again, allowing you to dip in and out of different side quests sometimes making you wait between phases. Saz's son Dodge is in a coma because his soul has been fragmented. So you have to travel through all five parts of the world to find one of them in each and wake Daj up. And it doesn't really come to a good payoff. The only part about it that really clicks is Saz gets to have his son back, and this is where he learns that Chocolina is the weird chocobo who lives in his afro. And he just goes, oh yeah, I knew that. You you are the only person who would ever shit talk me like this fucking bird. That's an actual <laughs> thing he says. Yeah. 
Yeah, what? No, you're too sassy. You got to be this little thing. And he points at the chick. <laughs> Elsewhere in the Wildlands. Yeah. Saz is a great character who, like so many people in this cast, just kind of runs out of steam after their arc is over in the first, or in Hope's case, second game. It's like, what do we do with Saz, the happy father who was like, he made his, in 13-2, he barely shows up. He's made his own airship travel business. Like, he's one of the premier pilots in the world. And then in this one, it's just like, my son's gone. I'm sad. Yeah. Uh, So elsewhere in the Wildlands, which is sort of like the island of misfit plot lines, Mog, the Mughal from 13-2, has become the king of the remaining Mughals. There's a village deep in the woods, and basically Lightning and Mog have a scene sort of reconciling, because Mog feels like he failed Lightning for not keeping her sister from dying when a deity croaked. It's it's a thing where Lightning's like, I get guilt, but this was totally not you, bro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't need to take this on. Yeah. Uh, so then, uh, yeah, Lightning sees an apparition of Sarah who promises to be with her soon in the new world. But uh, Lightning feels no like real feelings of warmth towards the apparition. And so she's worried that she's lost a part of her humanity. And basically Lumina helps Lightning realize that Sarah's soul has been stolen from her by uh, Boonavels and uh, suggests the apparition of Sarah, Hope, and Lightning herself are all fakes. This is also how they explain why you are so monotone in this game. Mm Mm-hmm because souls are said to be emotion, and so that is why she is so flat. Although, it does not prevent at least one somewhat infamous quest from being Lightning just being sassy as hell and completely sick of this shit. (laughs) When she has to go find fireworks from a bunch of people dressed like Chocolina, and the password she has to give every time is Meow Meow Choco Chow. (laughs) Every time you do this the actress has a different read. And as you go forward, she's just getting more and more fed up every time. (laughs) What's the password? Meow, meow, choco, chow. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. Yeah. They, well, even like weird soulless magic automatons, they've got a breaking point. (laughs) And it's seven chocolinas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So lightning basically said, you know, implies she's going to turn against uh, Bunavels if he doesn't, you know, fulfill his part of the deal. And Lumina reminds her basically that she's going to have to uh, betray Hope, who's her one remaining friend in Nova Crisalia, if she does this. These these little interludes we're talking about occur on some of the end of day transitions, so that's why they don't. These would have happened between things, but this is kind of the Lumina arc. If you push the story far enough, she eventually just straight up says, look, asshole, you are completely blowing off all the people who loved, who want your help, who are trying to reach out to you. 
And if you can't love yourself, how is anything going to come of this other than you just being a self-destructive moron for a third game in a row? Right. And at this point, Lightning goes, tell me what you know. And like, Luminous just goes, I can't be any more clear. Oh my God. And vanishes in a poof of frustration. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if you don't, if you don't love yourself. Yep. I was resisting the urge, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I went there. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's pop psychology, but it's, it's, a, it's a little better than uh, the power of friendship as far as like an underlying message. <laughs> And I'm entirely okay with just saying, hey, all right, lone wolf, you can only do so much alone, and people do like you, and you're allowed to just have friends. Yeah, totally. Because Lightning's whole arc over these games is being all business all the time, and that's why I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit. Her ultimate reward at the end of all of this is getting to have a social life. Yes. Yeah. It's the, it's the best, it's the best possible, the best of all possible worlds for her. Yep. So yeah, as the end is drawing near, the souls of the dead reside in the chaos, talk to lightning and they take the form of Sid Reigns. This is stupid, by the way. Sid is explicitly one of the biggest plot holes in FF 13. He is. Remember when I said there's a thing where cutscenes don't match story. Sid is literally the person who comes back in a cutscene who's been killed off in the story. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's how throwaway this person is, that like the two drafts don't line up at all. And then at the end of the game, they're just like, all right, but Sid. He's, he's yeah. <laughs> like there's explicitly a better character that you could do this with, which is Lightning's former commander, who is just this massive a uh, Samoan dude with a minigun who she also has a prior relationship with. Sid tried to murder her. Right. Yeah, it's it's just totally arbitrary. I mean, you know, the concept, of, the basic idea is cool. It's just the way it's embodied. Yeah, it's, um, just, it's just a poor choice of character to use here. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, you, basically, Bunavel sees the, you know, souls of the dead that reside in the chaos is these like impurities that have to be purged. And uh, so yeah, Sid asked lightning to stop the ritual Vanille is going to perform and to defy Bunavels as Vanille can unknowingly can do what lightning can't, which is uh, that she can guide the dead to a new world to be reborn. And lightning then learns the chaos doesn't actually need to be eradicated from the world. It's actually the material human hearts are made of. They're the connective tissue that unites all of mankind, and this is a power that gods can't see. It's emotion. Yeah, basically. And so your person's death, your soul is just going to melt into the chaos to await rebirth. And this uh, includes Sarah's soul. And Lightning thinks if she was going to plunge herself into the chaos and call out, Sarah's would respond. So we're now... We're now at the final day, and I want to talk about the the combination of what we just heard and the reveal we get here, which is what Bonavelle's plan for the chaos is. If Vanille is sacrificed along with the Clavis, 
it will destroy her. It will destroy the chaos, which reminder is the souls of every single living being who has died since Etro croaked. And this means everyone who knew those people in the chaos, what those people were, will forget them. Their existence will have been retroactively erased. And that means no one will have the lingering baggage of remembering all their dead loved ones when they're carried to Bonnevelle's new world. So that is a good villain reveal. I dig that mm-hmm. because Bonnevelle's as ultimate logic Lord who thinks that this is how you get rid of sadness and make a paradise. I dig that. That actually works. It just comes seven days too late in the story and in a very disjointed manner. Totally. Anyway, uh, at this point, everyone shows up and helps you stop the ritual. Snow destroys the clavis when he arrives and Fang and Vanille head out to guide the dead to the Ark so that you now have a full world with everyone who has croaked along the way. This final dungeon is interesting because it is you and Fang doing an assault on the cathedral. Mm -hmm. The whole way, the order trying to stop you. Various people in the church just like hiding out, praying for salvation. And it's a pretty good two angry bitches buddy cop scene (laughs) as you take on everyone in the church. It is. Fang and Lightning is a really good duo they did not take advantage of more. Yeah. It's a, it's a hell of a payoff. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And this is this is really cool. I like it. This last act goes really hard. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just with it. That's cool. I just had to check text. So, yeah. Basically, uh, Lightning's purpose as a savior of souls is fulfilled as basically the bells toll. It's the end of the world. And the final day comes to pass. Bunavels appears to uh, Lightning, and she learns that centuries ago, Hope became a puppet body that Bunavels has been using to better understand mankind as part of a scheme to purge it of their emotions and free will for his new world. So <laughs> it's kind of like an evil data from Star Trek. So lore. Yeah. And uh, now he's, you know, Bunavels has taken over Hope's body entirely. And he admits that he can't see human souls and he doesn't actually know where Sarah's soul is. You know, good call. Tell her that right at the end game. Perfect. Nothing can go wrong. Oh, this is the part where lightning just straight up goes into cosmogenesis, which is where the new world is being forged. And she tries to fucking murder him. Mm -hmm. But Bunavels goes, no, wait, I've got something much better than your sister's soul. How would you like to become the goddess of death and take on Etro's role to balance everything? That's what you want, right? And this is when she decides to shove a knife in his face. <laughs> right, right. You want to be you want to replace the uh, goddess that caused all of the problems to begin with. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, lightning much more proactive than Etro, it would be a change. <laughs> That's true. <sighs> yeah. 
Yeah, so she basically, yeah, just fucking takes Boonvals down. Yeah. Oops, I made you a Valkyrie and a goddess before I got you to sign on to my plan. I common writered. Yeah, oh well. (laughs) (laughs) And first she intends to basically plunge herself and Boonvals into the chaos uh, so they can free the souls that he consumed. But the fake Sarah that Boonavels created appears and implores Lightning to, you know, stick around and find the real Sarah. It's revealed that Boonavels had purged Sarah's soul from Lightning before making her the savior. And it's Lightning's denied feelings that had always lain latent between... It's, lightning, it's Lightning's feelings that were always latent within inside her that had been made manifest by the chaos that created Lumina. And that in turn, becomes a vessel for Sarah's soul. Anyway, Um, this is that last act reveal we talked about at the start of the podcast because it's dumb. Yes. (sighs) That's a lot of stuff to get to, you know, the point that we're going to get to. Anyway. Yeah. So Lightning basically accepts the part of herself that she wanted to deny. Lumina is reintegrated into Lightning. Sarah's soul is freed. And Lightning's heart is restored to uh, normal. Now, this is the part where you are having the incredibly sick final boss fight, which is three phases. And the first is just you fighting a sort of standard Bonavels who is nearly immobile. The second is him straight up warping the battlefield around you so that, like, gravity and what is up and down aren't always the same thing. Like you might be fighting on the walls at one point. It's pretty good, especially for an action combat. Mm -hmm. And the third, especially if you're on new game plus is a real bastard because he has multiple phases you go through normally. And this just goes All the phases are in play at once, including the one that casts death on you and has to be taken out within a time limit or you lose. Oh my god. So, as a really cool way to remix this boss fight for New Game Plus players who are likely going to be seeking the good end game, that's a really cool touch. It just straight up goes, alright, you know the deal, now know it all faster. Wow, yeah. And at this point, you take him out, Lightning frees Hope's soul, Sarah's soul, everyone's souls from Bunavels, And he actually keeps her from sacrificing herself by just chucking themselves into the chaos. So instead, Lightning frees everyone, takes the knife she gave Hope back at the start of the first game, which was a thing that she got from Sarah, had a lot of significance. She shoves a pocket knife into God, kicks him into hell, and screams. <laughs> It's a pretty cool moment. It is. It's good. And the land of Nova Crystallia is destroyed, and everything that's left behind is a black wasteland. Yeah, and so what's going to happen now? Well, Caius and all the different incarnations of Yule appear before Lightning and uh, her friends, and the Yules basically announce that they are going to take over Etro's role as the uh, protectors of the dead and keepers of the balance between the realms of the living and the dead. And basically as the realm is just starting to collapse in on itself, Caius allows his final incarnation of Yule to leave with Noel while he and all the other incarnations of Yule are basically drawn into the uh, 
unseen realm. And yeah, so the old world is gone and uh, Lightning and her friends come across a glimmering crystal in a void. The the Eidolons, the Moogles, the various spirit beasts bid their farewells and fade away because they're tied to that old one. And Lightning and all the souls of humanity leave for this new planet. Having begun her life anew, Lightning just steps off a train. She's no longer a soldier. She's no longer a Valkyrie. She just goes off and starts heading for a cafe to meet up with her friends in the middle of Paris, where she is now a fashion model in modern day Europe. Yes. This is how she was canonically a Louis Vuitton model IRL. I did not know that that's like, that that was canonical. I knew that she was a Louis Louis Vuitton model. Yes. But I did not make the connection that it was canonical. (laughs) They didn't reveal that in the campaign. And a lot of sites were good enough to not spoil that because Lightning Returns was happening roughly simultaneously. But yes, the canonical end to all of the FF13 saga is that Lightning created our Earth that we all live on and is a real person in it who works for Louis Vuitton. (laughs) You know what? I fucking love that. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. And like, None of y'all can see it, but I have actually pasted all of the posters from that ad campaign into this notes document. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful. I still am kind of sad that I did not steal the one at a local Louis Vuitton boutique because it was hilarious. Well, I'm going to put some of these in the show notes because they are. It's great. It's just like I can. It's amazing. And again, when you think about how the next Final Fantasy after this was 15, well, the next mainline, I guess, was 15 where Noctis is running around in a cup noodle shirt and doing Coleman camping ads and everything about that, you suddenly realize, ah, Lightning truly was the star that the franchise needed to bring it into a new era. It is. It's true. It's true. There is a there is a clear <laughs> Once upon a time we all thought the silliest JRPG tie-in was going to be that time that you could put Ava plug suits on characters in a Tales game. But no, Final Fantasy came back swinging. Oh yeah, no, I know. They 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 always find a way to top themselves. It's pretty good. There there was a long time when I cuz I I grew up playing i was mostly a sega kid and i skipped the ps2 or ps1 era so i really didn't play any of the final fantasy games growing up and it was when i came back to jrpgs as an adult i looked at final fantasy and i was like what the fuck is going on with this series this is all just every every time i pick one up it was just so off-putting to me because of like it's kind of like this sort of like really campy bullshit, but then yeah. at a certain point, something in my head switched, and I was like, "This campy bullshit is amazing." Whatever you think about Final Fantasy, very rarely does anyone involved step in and go tone that down a bit. <laughs> I know. And it's real easy to forget that because when it works, you get, you know some of the best 
JRPGs of all time, innovation, impressive spectacle, mechanics that are completely divergent from prior titles that click. They never want to rest on their laurels. It's great. When it goes wrong, you get things like, sure, the original FF14 was a fucking disaster. But then someone in charge goes, hey, can I try a thing? And no one tells him to stop. And now we have canonical sequels to Final Fantasy Tactics and Near Automata and other things all in the course of one game. Mm-hmm. And it's an MMO about yeah. how much love is not always the best thing. You might need to moderate love with some other stuff sometimes. And I've never played an MMO, but that near near automata, automata content really, really is tempting. <laughs> you got a long ways to go if you do, but boy, that recent expansion is the best thing. Might have to. I might have to give it a try. Because Make some time, or get ready to skip a whole. Thing. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know if you and I also, spoke about this, but I'm pretty sure Near Automata is my favorite JRPG at this point. <laughs> I could see that. Also, if you do that, wait like three months. They're doing a revamp of all the main FF14 game to make it easier. Cool. That's good like enough. basically, it's the modern design team doing a polish pass on the original launch arcs. Awesome. Well, is there anything we should add about Lightning Returns? The the light novel that takes place after this game isn't canon. She's a Louis Vuitton model, and fuck you. <laughs> I am That's totally, it. I am totally down, and <laughs> I'm I'm so down with this. And yeah, if you've made it through this episode without having played the game. I would please go back and play it. And I know it sounds totally batshit insane and it is, but I hope we've like helped, you know, make the case for it. Yeah. It's a fantastic title. It's easily one of the best things that Squaresoft did in the PS3 era from a mechanical standpoint. Uh, We're really not talking about how much fun a lot of the side content is and how snarky lightning dealing with all the incredibly tedious problems of these people is just constantly f- done with everyone's shit. It's really fun. You want me to go over there five feet and talk to your father because you're afraid to? Yes! <laughs> it's been 500 years of this, and you want me to just... Yes! Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's so much great stuff in here. Um, she literally has no time for any. I am saving the world. You want me to go buy seven kebabs? Sure, whatever. That's what I meant when I was saying that she's like the ultimate badass. She's just like, okay, fine, whatever. It's like, like I don't know. I kind of felt, you know, I was like, I was like, I felt seen, <laughs> like by Lightning's character in this in this game. You know, it's like. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes if if like, you had fun with this job or tasks that you, you know, really, you know, you were doing begrudgingly, but have to do, you know, <laughs> that's kind of her attitude. It's, it's wonderful. It's a delight. <sighs> yeah. This game is a delight. That's it. That's my one word rev- or one sentence review. I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, let's see, you can get on PC, right? You can get on Steam. Yeah. It's on PC. It's got a pretty good all in one package. 
You got, uh, I don't think you can get it on PS4. I, I've got it on PS3. I believe if you can't do PC where there are mods and some other things, the Xbox One upscales this game. Mm. And that is considered the best version of it secondary, like on a console. Just that's... get the 360 discs and it will actually make them prettier. Oh, that's good to know. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, Square's been really good about that with anything they put on the 360 that has backwards compatibility. Like they've actually issued some work to try and give you better textures and things. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to be a broken record, but you know, if I was to purchase this game again, it would be if it came to switch, which it probably in a million years won't. And it wouldn't be, wouldn't look that much better than the PS3 version probably. But I, you know, the switch is just my preferred platform for playing games on so you know i get that but yeah there, there are ways to get it you know and even if that means dusting off your old ps3 like i i keep my ps3 running basically for two reasons which is weird ass jrpgs like this that you can't really easily get elsewhere and to be able to play the PS2 Shimagami Tensei games. Good point. Hey, maybe, maybe we'll somehow get a Rido port to anything at all. <laughs> oh, you don't believe that one either? Yeah, neither do I. Never. I don't. I don't know. God, I don't know. <sighs> bring back my boy. Yeah. I've got Raiho sitting on my desk over here. <laughs> Oh man, I would love that. We got to get you on the next Rido. Uh, Absolutely, we do. Maybe we'll do that. That's Mega Ten Marathon <laughs> conversation. That's Rido uh, Kuzanoa uh, series that yes. we talked about. Which those games are awesome. Yeah, the second one came with a very cute plush. If you pre-ordered it, that is a Jack Frost in Rido's costume. It's so cool. Yeah, I've heard he names himself Rido. <laughs> Awesome. Well, let's wrap it up. What would you like to plug before we go? As I said, we covered on the Pitch Drop Network an entire season about each Final Fantasy thirteen game, Lightning Strikes Thrice, a JRPG Club podcast. If you feel like, oh, Shadow Hearts Covenant is too good, no one is suffering anymore, good news, we have announced that after we finish Covenant, we are doing another JRPG trilogy Xeno Saga is coming. Oh, nice. So yeah, get on that, and we'll be happy to see you in the coming year. We have plenty of things planned. Cool. Yeah, and I would also highly recommend, if you didn't know this already, check out Megaton Marathon, the other podcast that I do with Elisa, and Fletch is a uh, pretty common guest, and we do all the, you know, Basically, just kind of an unending <laughs> trudge and sometimes a sprint through all the Mega Ten games. Right now, we're doing Persona Three, and that's actually pretty. That's that's a lot of fun. So yeah, that's a MegatenMarathon.com. Let's see. As far as us, Combo Chain, you know, all the usual stuff. Rate and review on an Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're on Spotify, Google Play for re- 
for a while wasn't showing up on Google Play, but now it is, I think. And uh, yeah, there's a Patreon. If you want to help out, kick down a few bucks. It's uh, Mirror Image Studios is the name of the Patreon. And I'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, anything that you could kick down would be super helpful. We, yeah, we don't make money on these shows. And so anything to help cover the costs is much appreciated. So yeah, I think that kind of wraps it up for me. Anything else you want to add, Fletch? Nope. I'll be back when the inevitable Chocobo's Dungeon episode happens. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me and doing this. Always. And thanks for listening. See ya. Bye.